So we're looking at one book, one story. We've been going through the Old Testament. Let me just fill you in for a couple of minutes on what's happened since last week. Last week, we looked at the Israelites encamped at the foot of Mount Sinai. They um, had the tent um, ready so that God would dwell with his people. Here it is. Um, Now, that's where they were um, at the foot of Mount Sinai under Moses as their leader. Um, Now, moving through the book of Numbers accounts the wonderings of God's people. They go through that place, which is now the Jordan, which was called the plains of Moab there. God's people, they're wondering, they're waiting to go into the promised land. That's what's been promised to them, and they're waiting to go. The book of Deuteronomy is um, Moses explaining again the law that was given to him. Um, And at the end of Deuteronomy, Moses dies. So Moses, just before they enter the promised land, he dies and he never even makes it. So then the book of Joshua um, accounts Joshua leading God's people in conquest into Jericho and then into the place that was promised as God's um, place for the people. The book of Judges then is a little filler in between the time of the conquest where they're going into the promised land and the time where the land and the people have a king. Um, The judges get worse and worse and the people are in pretty bad shape, which leads us through eventually through Ruth, which is about God's provision, but ultimately into Samuel, which is where we are now, which is where we have our first king instilled, God's people in God's place and they've got a king. They're in a brilliant place. And here, as we see King David, the second king, he's a good king. And he's a king that for most of his life is eager to be faithful to God. It's all been leading up to this moment. This is where we join the passage this afternoon. This is where we are. They've been on conquest to the promised land. They've got there. They've got a king. It all looks brilliant. David's the king and David's a good king. It looks like Israel, God's people, have hit the absolute peak. They're in the best shape possible. David's feeling pretty happy. But God's ways are greater than our ways. God's ways are greater than David's ways. So David's just become king. He's defeated some Philistines, people there at the time. And he gets the ark brought to the temple. Do you remember last week, the ark um, brought into the tabernacle, it signified God dwelling with his people. It was a brilliant place to be where God again could be with his people. David gets it brought into the temple in Jerusalem. The people have a land, they have a king, they are God's people and they feel like they've arrived. God's now dwelling with them, like we saw in Leviticus last week. And David is pretty happy. Have a look down at verse 7. Here I am living in a house of cedar, while the ark of God remains in a tent. He's pretty happy. He's in his temple, but he almost feels sorry for God. The ark of God, God's dwelling place, still remains in a tent. He wants to build a house for God. He wants to cement the current status. Do you remember I said it's like they've arrived? People, place, land, king. David wants to cement the current status. 
to show how great the position they're in at the moment is. But God's ways are greater than David's ways. We're going to see God's promise and David's response. Let's have a look down at God's promise. And as we read through, maybe you'll notice it's the same as before, but better than ever. Have a look down at verse 9. Read with me. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth. And I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. God's promise is to deliver on his original promise. A great nation, to have a place of their own, to have rest from their enemies so that they can be God's people and be marked out as that. God is again being faithful to the promise to his people. Okay, so that kind of makes sense, doesn't it? From what we've seen so far, God being faithful to his promise. That makes sense from what we've seen already. He's faithful to Abraham. He's faithful on those promises. But wait, just look, look down at verse 12. Read on again with me. When your days are over and, you're, and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. When he does wrong... I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. See, this is the promise to David that somewhere along the line in his family will come a king that will rule like this forever. That's the amazing promise that at the height of Israel's history, the best place God's people seem to have been ever, God promises an even greater rescuer. When all the other promises are in place and Israel have their king they've always wanted, God promises a king and a kingdom that will last forever for God's people. Well, what is God's plan? It's to ultimately deal with the issues that we've seen through the Old Testament. The land that's uncertain, the people that disobey God, the leaders that fall, the enemies that are a threat to God's people. What God promises to David, to the people of Israel, and to God's people now is that his ultimate solution, Jesus, the man in David's line who came to earth, who is God's son, will deal ultimately with all of these issues. Jesus is the promised king to deal with all of these issues. <coughs> See, Jesus' sacrifice on the cross is the ultimate defeat of rebellion against God. 
Jesus' defeat of death promises life with God forever. Jesus' promise of heaven is the ultimate resting place for God's people forever. That they'll dwell with God, be able to be with him and enjoy him forever. That's God's promise. It's the same as before, but better than ever. It's the ultimate solution for God's people. It's the ultimate hope for those who would trust in this king. I don't know if you've ever had an incident where plans change dramatically. Whether you've missed a flight or got ill, where something in an instant flips, where all the plans for a certain amount of time completely change. Do you know that feeling? Being rejected from a flight? A holiday or a trip completely gone. I've been reading a book recently where a man <coughs> called Ray, living in America, documents his story, his struggle of his work. He's um, basically struggling in how he communicates and how people respond to him as he communicates. And what he does is he talks about it to a, a random acquaintance that he sits next to at a coffee shop. He sometimes in his work, works in a coffee shop and sits next to this guy who becomes even more and more and more interested in what's going on in this man's life, in Ray's life. Now, um, Ray decides that he's going to do something practical about it. He blocks the week off work. He's going to do some reading and get a few meetings in place to make sure that he's going to deal with this issue head on. Now, along the way, this acquaintance, this coffee shop acquaintance has been listening in. He's been asking questions. He's been taking a bit of an interest. Now, what Ray didn't know is that this coffee shop acquaintance was a head of a large multinational corporation. And his interest would soon materialize into something of a plan. But until then, Ray carried on. The first day of this week blocked out to deal with the issue head on, Ray strolls into his normal coffee shop and there was the head of the large multinational corporation facing him at the door. He looked at Ray and said, Ray, I've got a plan for you to go and you will deal with this issue head on. This man, this um, large um, businessman that had all things sorted, he had lined up that um, Ray would go straight to the airport, jump on a private jet, be whisked across America, go to the headquarters, go through training. It was all lined up perfectly. Um, somehow he'd got in touch with Ray's wife, Ray's boss. He'd, he'd made sure everything was sorted. And in that moment, as Ray walks into the coffee shop, he's left with something of a decision. In that moment... Is he going to carry on with the next five days? Or is he going to go, deal with the issue head on, trust the flight and go? How did Ray respond? Obviously, he jumps on the plane. It's all he wanted. He just needs to adapt to the change of plan. See here, as David comes to God, do you remember what he said? I'm going to build you a house. This is my plan. Everything's good at the moment, God, and here's my plan. 
But God returns to David and says, no, here's the real plan. This is the real plan of a king that will come from your line that will rule forever. Jesus is the great rescuer. Let's see how David responds. David comes to God in submission. Ultimately, God has humbled David. David's been reminded that God's plans are far greater than David's plans. David has been reminded in that moment that he is not bigger than God. He recognises his position before God and he can't help but let that shape the way he speaks to God. Look at what he does. Look at verse 18. He sat. He recognises he's not worthy before God. And see how he addresses God in verse 18 and verse 19? Sovereign. God, you are in complete control. That's what David's saying. God, I submit to you and your plan. David's been massively humbled. Because God has made this huge promise to him that will change eternity. And when David listened to God and realised his place before him, he couldn't help but submit to God's way in his life. And that shaped how he approaches him. For us, in Jesus, the promised king, we have a king who will reign forever. He is greater than us. When we realise what he's done for us, surely we can't help but submit and say, you are greater than me. We submit to King Jesus. In any situation we face, God's ultimate solution is the deliverance through the sacrifice of Jesus. The promise of what's to come in heaven where Jesus reigns on the throne perfectly. But what does that actually look like? See, as we come to God, we've got to remind ourselves that we're completely dependent on him. Whether it be like David, literally sitting, kneeling before God to pray. Whether it be looking at parts of the Bible that remind us of how dependent on Jesus we are or whether it be repeatedly reminding ourselves that actually our next plan, our next phase, our next fad, it won't deliver us through this time. It won't deliver us through our current tough patch. A key part of coming back to God, repenting, both the first time and ongoing, is to admit that we can't do anything. There's nothing I can do to solve my own situation. Just like Noah, Abraham, Moses, the people that we've looked at, they weren't righteous because they were good. In fact, there's nothing good about us. The inclination of my heart, of our hearts, were against God all the time. God had revealed the ultimate rescuer for us in Jesus. David's line, his promised king. 
And he promised to, to work out for us all things for our good in preparation for the day that this kingdom will be a physical one where there'll be no threat on Jesus's rule. So if you're sat in the room this afternoon, whether you've been trusting in Jesus for years or you wouldn't say you trust in Jesus yet, today you can pray saying, there's nothing I can do by myself, God. I am completely dependent on Jesus. If you have never prayed that prayer, please consider it because it's the most freeing prayer to pray. Saying, God, I accept your promised king to deliver me. David comes to God in submission and David comes to God in awe. See, David, as he prays, his focus is on God's character and what he's like. Remember, David's been humbled by God. He came to God with a plan. He said, I'm going to build you a house, God. And God comes back to him and says, no, here's my promise for you. Here's my promise for God's people. In that moment, David must have gone, wow. Wow, God, this is huge. Look at verse 22. How great you are. There is no one like you. God's the object of David's awe. There's nothing that compares to him. Verse 20, it's like he's saying, I'm lost for words. See, as we see God's unfolding story fit together, one book, one story, we will come to God in awe. Because God's plan all along was to deliver his people. We should come to God with awe because he's revealed this work fully through Jesus. We should come to God with awe because day by day, God is at work keeping his promises, staying faithful as he always was. What does that look like? What it look like to do that? Well, David recognises God's remarkable kindness in this great plan. And we have the promises of God for us now too, recorded in the Bible. God's revealed his plan in Jesus to rescue people. The most amazing solution to the problems that we've seen through the Old Testament, the problems of rebellious hearts, of land that isn't kept of leaders that aren't great when we see just how that all fits together when we see how great God's solution in Jesus is when we're reminded of how amazing those promises are then we'll come to God in awe in order to do that sometimes here's two things that are helpful it's helpful to be familiar with God's promises, to know what it is that God's promised for his people, to know his character, to fill our minds with what he's promised for us by looking at the Bible, remembering what it says. And it's helpful to look out for how God delivers on his promise, how it is that God looks after his people now. Maybe keeping note of what it is you pray for watching out, looking back. How is it that God delivered me 
through that period? How is it that God delivered me through that tough patch that I thought was all-consuming, yet Jesus was the answer and God did deliver me? David comes to God in awe and he comes to God in submission. That's what he's like. But what does he actually practically do? Just have a look back to verse 25. David's prayer is for what God's promised. David's prayer is for God's will. Verse 25, keep the promise. Do as you've promised. Verse 28, your covenant is trustworthy. You have promised good things. In how David approaches God, in the way that he speaks to him, it's framed by what God's promised David. David prays in light of what God has promised because he sees what God has planned is the best thing for him. Everything is shaped within that promise, those covenants that he speaks about. David's priority is that God's plan would be fulfilled. What would it look like to do that now? To pray in view of God's promises, let them shape the way that we approach God? It's not that God doesn't want us to approach him with bold, big prayers. But ultimately, his plan will always be greater for us. Just as David approached God, he says, God, I'm going to build you a house. What God came back to David with was amazing. The promise of Jesus. When we pray with the priority of God's plan, part of that process is remembering that God's plan for us is the very best thing. When we pray for God's will, we can still be bold and ask for things. But the only things that we can be absolutely sure that God will give us is the things that he's promised in his word. See how David prayed within the context of saying, God, this is what you've promised. God, this is the covenant. Please deliver. Please do as you've promised. Things outside of that. We've got to be ready for God to say, no, that's not what I've got planned for you. And it's the very best thing for you. We might have to be ready for God to say, no, that, that's not what I've got planned for you. But it's the very best thing. Are you ready for that? No, I haven't got a comfortable job planned for you. No, I haven't got a second car planned for you. No, I haven't got a husband or a wife planned for you. I haven't got a mortgage planned for you. No, I haven't got a child planned for you. No, that luxury holiday, it's not planned for you. Bigger house, day off, it's not planned for you. But it's the very best thing for you. God's ways are greater than our ways. And David's concern is for God's glory. Look at verse 26. What does David want? If you take him to a part at that moment, what is it that David wants so that your name will be great forever? The people's praise will be directed to you. What does David want? David wants God to be glorified. 
David shows God that he, he just wants God to look like the good God that he is, that promises good things, that delivers on his promise, that delivers his people. Because David's been humbled to see how amazing and awesome God is. He realises the best thing is to bring him glory. And that's his concern, that's how he prays. Just think for a moment about David in that moment. He's at the height of Israel's history. He's in a great house, on a great throne. Look, Israel are about as good as they could possibly be. And yet then... God gives David this amazing promise. Just how susceptible do you think David in that moment would be to saying, look at me, I have arrived. Let's just, let's just pause there for a minute and tell everyone how good I am as a leader. But no, he is a great king in a great house with a great promise. Yet at that moment, you take him apart. What does he want? God's glory. As you submit to God now, that's you. As you flourish in the Christian life, as you serve Jesus, the things that you're doing really great at, where are you susceptible to being concerned with your own glory? I asked myself this question a few times this week. What is it that you might say that shows that you're susceptible to your own glory and not God's. Well, actually, we come to church pretty much every week now, if you hadn't noticed. Well, actually, I do give a significant amount of money to church now. Did you see how many of my friends came to that event that we put on? Did you know? Someone said that was the most helpful talk they've ever heard. Did you hear? Those kids were talking about that junior church craft for weeks. Does everyone know how long I spend on setup? Refreshments, admin. Or, look at verse 26. God, please do as you've promised in me so that your name will be great forever. Then people will say, the Lord Almighty is God over Israel. Wouldn't that be great for it to be my prayer, your prayer, as we serve God? Do as you promised in me, God, so that people will say, you're great. When we're awestruck by God, when we see how just amazing he is, how good his promise is, our concern must be for his glory. It follows. See, as David comes before God, he comes before God with a bit of a plan. And what God promises to David is the ultimate deliverance of God's people forever. The most amazing promise ever. The promise for us too, that if we trust in Jesus, the promised king in the line of David, we can have eternity with him forever. There is no better promise. There is no better offer. Do you know that? Do you remember that? Let me pray. Father, thank you so much that you 
promised to deliver your people. Thank you so much that your King Jesus in the line of David promises rest forever, promises to rule forever. Lord, please would you help us as we go away from here to recognise and respond to King Jesus. Amen.